The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild course language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deeg speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop, I'm Will Anderson and joining me for the very first time ever on a Fofop, he's been on Velocity a couple of times, he was one of my original Velocity guests but he's never been on Fofop, so welcome to the Tofop Extended Universe, the TCU uh, for this episode of Fofop, Ben Lee, hello. Hey, I'm excited, this is another level of the initiation. I mean, it is It is bringing you inside, if this was like a cult, if this was like a multi-level marketing cult, as they mostly are from my... Uh, uh, Let's, in fact, let's fucking talk about cults because we've never like we've we've touched on this a bit in uh, philosophy over the years. You know, we've mentioned cults, but we've never had a, like a proper full on conversation about cults. And I have told you I'm not a joiner, but I am obsessed with the idea of cults. And during the lockdown, I went deep into Nexium in particular because ah. there was two documentaries that rolled around about Nexium, and I believe you you might even know yeah. some of the people who are involved in one well, of those. Bonnie, is that right? yeah, Bonnie, you know, is an Australian who um is um she was in Star Wars and stuff. Like you might have bumped into her over the years. Um, she's married to that guy Mark Vicente, and the two of them got really yeah really involved in it, and it was. Yeah, we had a few because I, I sort of, you know, it's so interesting. First, are you watching The Deep End? Have you watched any of that? That doc? There's a new, no. there's a new doco. It's it's Hulu in the US, so that might be like binge or something here, or Stan or whatever. But it's um, uh-huh. it's about Teal Swan, who's a like a new age cult guru now, but it's in real time happening, and it's about her sort of paranoia and manipulation of her immediate inner circle, and it, it's amazing. But um. I think, uh, I mean, so many things sort of coalesced for me to be interested in these types of groups. I think like, um, you know, underground music and indie labels and cool hidden scenes, they're all very cult-like, you know, and they all sort of operate on the level that we have secret knowledge and if we bring you into the fold, you're going to learn about the real shit. You know what I mean? Like everyone else is listening to the corny shit. Join us. Check this out and you'll hear the real shit. So like I have been very, the, the, the part of me that like was like a seeker for hidden things, I think was very like predisposed to that type of invitation. And then also the part of me, so there's like multiple things. So another part of me that's like, kind of enamored by power like if you've sort of if you're interested in the entertainment business and you've gone into show business like some understanding of power and glamour and charisma and all of that is just fundamental to what we do it's like because we we, cult leaders and stuff are using the same skills that we as entertainers are using which has to do with generating experiences in the minds and hearts of people that we don't know very well yet right. we, we learn taking a whole group of taking a whole group of strangers and to get them to react in unison so i often say of stand up that like the real trick of stand up is to take 
a thousand people who, if they meet in the foyer, would have nothing in common to talk about and get them to all, with no warm-up, with no, like, hi, what's your name, who are you style, like, just get them to all decide that they are going to agree because that's what a laugh is, right? Or that's what someone singing along to one of your songs is. It's a totally. an agreement amongst those those people. They are all at your church uh, in that moment and you are using those powers. Like, I think I, I absolutely right. When I watch those documentaries, I go, yeah, I, I have all those skills. I could definitely be a cult leader. <laughs> exactly. It's all seduction and, and the, the, the more power you get or the more eyes on you, like as a performer, it becomes almost more subtle the ways you can shape the audience's experiences. Like, you know, when you start out, you have to yell and scream on a stage to get attention. Mm-hmm. But as you ascend up the ranks, it becomes little knowing looks and little moves of the body that uh-huh. suggest things. And so, you know, gurus, they know all that stuff. So there's all of that going on, which I would almost say is all like shadow material that drove me towards some of these experiences. But then there's also just the earnest. I'm just like, I want to know, you know what I mean? Like I've always been the kind of person that just like, Uh I want information. I want to learn. I want to go deeper. I'm like a real, like, it's not as much that I'm a joiner as I'm like a gobbler with life. You know what I mean? Like if I like the taste (laughs) of something, I want to eat it every day by the pound, you know? Um, So, so yeah, anyway, all of that stuff just led to me exploring multiple cults. I suppose there's like probably three, maybe four experiences I had in group dynamics or with teachers and things that would classify as cults dynamics. And, um, I would say, actually, in general, it sort of all worked until it hit, um, it affected my parenting. You know what I mean? Like, as far as, like, just being on your own and being, like, tripping out and going on these occult things, it's all fun and games, literally. But then once you start, you've got kids who are dependent on you and you're beginning to consciously and unconsciously impart lessons to them that you're picking up and you're starting to shape their (laughs) worldview. And it's not all the healthiest stuff. That's when I think I was, that was the wake up call for me of just like, you know what? This shit has all gone too far. Like I need to like pull back and get grounded. And I mean, I also had this big sort of awakening that, you know, when I was 14, like when I sort of got, you know, quote unquote discovered by like the beasties and Sonic Youth and all that, that was also cult like in that they were these um very insular kind of paranoid communities of hipsters, you know, where like there were a lot of rules for like if you're if you're in the hippest part of culture, there's a hell of a lot of conformity going on, you know, and there can still be amazing experimentation and everything. But I I sort of realized that, like, actually that cult of, like, showbiz people, that is my actual real cult in the sense that, like, um, I think I was looking for family (laughs) a lot, you know, And, Uh. and I realized, like, it's almost like the obvious thing that hits you is that, it takes a long time to process. And because I was 14 when I got sort of immersed in this world of like thinkers and edgier artists and stuff. And I just sort of like, at the end of the day, even though they were cool people, I had to challenge it because it was still adults telling me who I was. And I wasn't ready to settle for that. And then as I've gotten older, I was like, yeah, you know what? That actually is my people. (laughs) Freaky artistic thinkers are like, that want to push culture forward is like the people I actually find that sense of fraternity and family with and everything. 
It's interesting to me, everything that you say, always, to be honest. But like, I'm super interested in this idea of uh, art as cult or community, particularly coming out of this pandemic. And I'm already seeing it. My, 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 good, my big hope, my nice hope for this was that there was going to be a whole lot of people, if they were doing the same thing as I was doing, which was to just, you know, I, I had a joke where, you know, people said, oh, yeah, I binged this TV show, you know, during the pandemic. And I'm like, oh, that's fun. I binged every single decision yeah. I've made in my entire <laughs> life. That's what I did with the two years. And it, it because I did, I examined what my art was and why it existed and what role it played in my life and what role I wanted it to play in my life if I got the opportunity to do it again. And I could only imagine that there were like thousands of artists all over the world having those same conversations with themselves. And in my world, you've already seen some of the uh, things that have come out of that. I mean, Bo Burnham's Inside to me is something that was an artist going, okay, I'm in this time. I am an artist. How do I use my particular skills as an artist to do something that is absolutely reflective of this time? And in a time when, particularly with the pandemic, I'm hearing from like book publishers and like TV writers and movie people that they're all just ignoring it. That you know, nobody wants to you know see people in masks. No one wants to hear pandemic stories. And- oh yeah, that's true. Like I did a thing on like uh, SBS the other day, like a TV show, and. There was some joke that was meant to be connected, you know, whatever, catch my disease, we're all in this together. And the mandate that came from above was no mention of the pandemic. So, yeah. That's, and, yeah. and, well, to me, that is that is weird. I find that weird because I think as artists, like particularly of artists our age, we've never really been through anything. Like unless we were in New York when 9-11 happened, you know, like there's not really been – that major significant oh fuck life is really fucking hard that every other generation has lived through this is our one like we're we're in it now i get the impression we're gonna have a few more before we're done but uh, you know this was our first really big one and the idea is that as an artist you would not like i don't mean that you have to speak directly to it but i just mean that it would not majorly influence whatever decision it is that you make with your art so tell me you you like so you've like put together a new album during this time so talk to me about where you're at as an artist like how the pandemic affected where you were at as an artist like did it accelerate anything did it change anything was there like a u-turn on anything that you were like where, where's your head at like making a creative thing right now well, well just something that came to mind though that i want to touch on that you just said was i think the the conflict that we have as a culture in terms of creating stuff that deals with this reality of the pandemic is that you know, like Virginia Woolf talked about, like, we can only speak about something accurately once it's over. And the real conflict we're dealing with conceptually is this battle between um, people that want to believe the pandemic's over and people who don't. Because because we're still in it, it's actually yeah. hard. And knowing that there's a, a time lag in how we turn things around, like I thought... um curb your enthusiasm was interesting when they decided they were going to deal with the, the you know the guy who was hoarding um the purell but the problem with that was there was by the time that episode came out we actually knew more about the virus being airborne and it didn't land in the same way it would have when that episode was 
filmed when it seemed like and also there was enough purell to go around it, that was a there were those were moments brief moments of like a cultural thing and so i i understand the difficulty of being in something and not wanting to create something that gets dated um but that's really proof to the fact that we're still in it because if it was over we'd be able to make make content about it that was like consistent and didn't risk being didn't risk aging badly but isn't there something also i I mean i get what you're saying with curb your enthusiasm good 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 example of something that's just more about a topical thing that dated really badly but surely there are consistent themes that have been released to us, whether they be around like our con- contact with other people or the idea of loneliness or misinformation or like, you know, vaccine hes- hesitancy or belief in science or any of these things that have been more meta themes of the pandemic rather than like, you know, people who wear their masks the wrong way or whatever else it is. Isn't there something about who we are as humans that has been like, isn't there this like festering wound of humanity that is just like the scab has been picked and we've all been able to see just how raw and messy and fragile and all those things that it is. Yeah. But do you think, I mean, I, I sort of, except for like rare occasions with like Bob Dylan or um, run the jewels or like there's certain things that have like a (laughs) protest song type thing. That's very topical. Um, I don't really look for art to speak directly and like um, literally to my experiences. I, I do think the themes, I know that the way I'm, consuming the work that I'm listening to as a fan or the shows I'm watching, they are by nature speaking to my needs in this present moment and my needs are shaped by the experiences I've been through. So I think um, work that's about frustration and I do think there's a vulnerability. I think part of like, if you look at comedy, I think um, Gerard Carmichael's uh, special, um, Rathaniel, while it wasn't at all about the pandemic, there was a sense of an accelerated need to be honest and connect yeah. authentically with the audience. And that was about sexuality, which you could go, well, what does that have to do with the last few years? But I think that people are feeling the people, most people <laughs> I know are feeling a a rush to a, a greater sense of urgency to live in their truth regardless of if it's actually true or not. I agree. You know? So I agree. <laughs> like, so yeah. I agree with that. Like, so the, I guess that's maybe even what I was getting to in a, in a clumsy way is this idea of, I think there's a sense of if this is the last time that I had something to say, what is it that I would want to say? Because the idea that it could be the last gig you do or the last album you release or whatever becomes more of a reality in these times than it ever has felt like before. If this is the last opportunity that you have to say something, or maybe I'm completely you know, misinterpreting it when it comes to you, but if this is the last in- opportunity you have to say, what, what do you say? What is it that you're trying to communicate as an artist? So Gerard's special is a really good example. Like he clearly had this truth about who he is that he hadn't necessarily admitted to the wider world. And he's like, okay, well, you know what? You know, this is something that I don't want to let be, have left unsaid. And I think at the moment, particularly if you're of our age and we've just gone through what we've gone through, you start to think, what haven't I said yet that is really important for me to to say i know okay that i know that's what i've been thinking that's what my show was this year was 
what, what do I really want to say? You know, um, uh, Gary Goldman always says that, like, write the show that you would want to go and see. And I think this year, for the first time ever, I really just wrote a show that I would like to sit in the audience and watch. And so... That's awesome. So what about you? Uh, I, like, w- when you, like, you know, look at the art that you're making and what you're trying to do right now, what is it that you haven't said, or at least what is it that you're trying to say? This is going to sound maybe contradictory or paradoxical, but... The impending sense of doom and the tenuous sort of grasp on stability that has kind of been really revealed within a capitalist (laughs) democracy, (laughs) you know, um, uh, all of it, um, instead of making me want to be heavy and want to, like... Like, I'm obviously, like, any smart person in my 40s, you know, obsessed with following what's happening with climate change, what's happening with, you know, backsliding democracies and all of that. But I've kind of leaned into my sense of play even further because I've realized that... I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I think um, when you're young... You like, we all harbor, not all of us, but those of us that are, like to get up on a stage probably and have like, you know, um, delusional fantasies of the level of our own importance in the world or the potential for that. <laughs> we like the idea that we're going to be part of um, a solution uh. to problems, you know, like we're going to be, whether it's like a Neo Matrix thing of like, you know, we are the one that's been waiting, you know, like that, that like as an artist, you like conjure that like prophetic type thing of like, I'm going to deliver the work uh. that's, you know, and um, as I've gotten older, what I've realized, I think part of what my actual gift is, as opposed to the gift I wanted to have, mm-hmm. and I think that's a big part of what maturing yeah. actually is is that, like, I'm actually pretty good at creating an atmosphere Mm -hmm. for people. Um, And that, like, I've had that from the very beginning of my career, people saying that um, the way I did what I do was almost more important than the thing I was doing. So, like, when I was 14, I got signed not because I'd made the best. Like, if it's interesting. If you look at, like, me and Daniel Johns are very dissimilar in a lot of ways. And it's funny, we both started at the same time with quite some similarities in our narrative. He made something that was exceptional, the actual thing. Like when you listen back to Silverchair, they they played with a precision and a a technical ability that was so far beyond their years. It was like they made a thing that was impressive. Yeah, if you heard it and you didn't know they were kids, you wouldn't know they were kids. I still can't play that tight with a band as they played when they were 14. I just can't. I don't have it in Mm -hmm. me, you know. So I didn't do that. What I did, I proceeded with an attitude that inspired people, you know. So what I realized is that, like, my best bet, for making like a real contribution to the world is not that I'm going to be the guy that comes up with the idea of how to do it, but that I might create the atmosphere through a song, through a gig, through whatever, where someone else has a good idea (laughs) because I've given them a little bit of courage. I've given them a bit of playfulness because like, it's very hard to come up with good solutions to things in life if you're really stressed. Mm -hmm. 
And I think if you're feeling brave and feeling playful and feeling open, which is kind of like the space I try and create, that's a really good problem solving space. So I just realized that like doubling down on my sense of playfulness was actually possibly the biggest contribution I could make at a time of absolute cosmic stress. And I think that there is what you're saying. I, I, it goes back to this idea of, you know, finding your cult, right? Or going back to your cult or realizing that like, oh, hey, this is where I was meant to be the whole time. But now I'm not that 14-year-old kid. I'm that like mid-40s guy who has... Like, I can make a contribution to this industry, even if it's just to say, hey, the way I do it is also a way to do it. Like, it, you know, yes, there are all these other ways, and I'm not even saying all those other ways are bad ways to do it. But you're, you know what those ways are. You can also do it this way, if you like. Well, that's exactly it. And I started to realize, like, I don't need any other justification. Like, I used to think, like, almost like the proof of concept of my ideas needed to be stronger so I could prove to the world. And now I'm going like, if I like things, that's enough. Like if I like a young artist, I'm going to get behind them. I don't know if they're going to, I've, I've done things where like, I've like helped out young musicians that have just squandered like any, any assistance (laughs) I gave them because they weren't made of the thing that had the killer attitude where they wanted to go to the top of most of the problems. And then I've had like, I've played on gigs. I was in the studio with Bruno Mars when he was starting out, and I was like, oh, it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> and at times I think like, wow, that could have been a real gravy train. Yeah. Like I, if I'd have started collaborating with him, but it's not for me. And that's me being authentic about like what I'm into. And I just sort of, um, I just feel more than ever that like it's enough. To be enthusiastic is enough, and we need more of that. Okay, so I'm I'm then interested in like how that manifests. Because I remember a time, so obviously um, I was at, on, tri- on Triple J 2000, five years, 2000 to 2004. Always sounds like four years when you say it like that, but it, that is five <laughs> years, it's inclusive. Um, and there was that, so that's a period of time where you were both a very popular Triple J artist, but also like there's some, you know, Ben Lee backlash in that time as well, right? Like there's, that's got to be around that timing how was that at the time? How is it at the time? Because when you do something different, like it comes with obviously those people who, who don't like the idea that something is being do, do, doing differently, you can become the punchline for those people. And then how is doing that again in a second coming? Like, is, do you have a different attitude to that? Did you learn anything from the first time? Yeah, well, one of the, the things, I think one of the reasons we've always connected and I get on well with lots of comedians um, and always love collaborating in that world is that comedy and um, satire has always been a massive part of what I do in that I've, I, you know, I'm an Andy Kaufman guy. Like I first saw like all the Andy Kaufman stuff in like 99, I think like, Harmony Corinne turned me on to him. And I was just like, this is my shit. Whatever this is, <laughs> I did not grow up watching. I mean, comedy yeah. to me growing up was like in Australia, it was like Kevin Bloody Wilson and Rodney Roode and like, or like ostentatious. I didn't know about this world of like, almost like punk rock comedy yeah. and the idea that like making people uncomfortable was a valid form of entertainment that not only I enjoyed because I, I I harbored it as like a um, it was like a perverse delight whereas it, I didn't see that 
represented in like you know there was like Seinfeld which is like I love Seinfeld but it's like it's old fashioned you yeah. know what I mean it was just whereas the punk rock thing of like like I'm gonna push buttons was like it spoke to me I was like oh I fa-. again it was that feeling of like I found my people you know um, so I think a lot of what I was doing in my early career um, well that wasn't even early that was already getting into like another you know chapter I was like 10 years in but but um speaking to uh speaking to the, the the desire to play a character and to fully see it through with commitment is always something that and and then also the great thing i learned from like david bowie and bob dylan and stuff was allow it to penetrate you to a degree that you actually aren't sure if you're playing a right. character like that that's almost like the method acting side of it that is where the real fun is like and i think someone like kanye has is well aware of that and it, it, it the thing about this is it's playing with fire and it's your downfall it's always your downfall because it's totally uncontrollable you know um because you that's what whenever i used to say it's like i'm the greatest australian songwriter yeah. of all time people would say do you really believe that or not i was like of course not. Just you know, just a little bit, because um, it's like, because you you sort of have to to play those characters, right. you know. Um, but then, then in the in the early two thousands, with Awake is the New Sleep and everything, there was like a new inhabit inhabitation or a new way of thinking about what my role was, and it was almost like letting down my guard that I'd put up in that all that Andy Kaufman mm. type stuff, and was just like, I'm gonna just show up innocent. Because in a way, that's like the biggest fuck you is for people to be expecting you to be acting like a tough guy and just show up totally open hearted. And it was like it, it felt even at the time it was sincere, but it was also another level of performance art where I just realized like, oh, these wonderful moments as artists where we can do a 180 and upend everybody's sense of expectations and actually just i'm gonna just be sincere (laughs) and that was like a beautiful moment you know so i just think all of it is these chances to like experiment with our own psyches and go now i'm you know and now i'm in my 40s now i'm now i'm becoming um you know uh what do you call it? Like, it's not the establishment, but it's like an elder. Right. You know what I mean? And so now you meet artists and then then 19, 20 years old and they ask you questions about it. And you speak, you practice speaking with a little bit of wisdom, but also like pepper it with a very healthy distrust of the system that tells them, you couldn't possibly have any answers for them at the same time. Because, you know, show business is hacking your way through a jungle with a machete and then the everything closing behind right. you so no one could ever follow it's not possible you know so it's all just like i don't know it's this like art just gives you this chance to explore all these ways of being in the world and i'm in another one now that i realize like is um it's interesting as i've gotten older and i've realized that oh if you work with good taste through your life, like, and I know you know this because you actively take this role on too of guiding people towards, like helping curate what is good 
for people. You know what I mean? Like I can't, I didn't watch the show yet, but I, I made note of the show you were tweeting about recently because I saw how passionate you were about it. That what was that TV show you were talking about? Yeah, oh yeah. So it's not even a TV show. I'll, I'll, I'll give people a, a plug on the podcast because yeah. it's, it's awesome. So it's called Shut Up. It's only five minute episodes. Oh, yeah, I'm YouTube, sold. So it's, <laughs> So it's literally like, I think, your total 30 minutes of your day for some one of the most delightful things you've watched. It was made entirely in lockdown with a tiny little budget. It looks amazing. The acting's amazing. Celia Piccola's in it. Deborah Lawrence is in it. It's just, it's, and I have absolutely, I know a few people are involved in it, but literally I have no connection. And I was just like, this thing need some independent advocate. So I'm just going to spend a little bit of my day today trying to be an independent advocate for this show because I think it's I think it's cool and I think they should get to make some more of it. But I also think it's just I love when people just make things. I think we live in a world now where, you know, so often you can just you know, the old ways of doing things. And I'm a person who works in, like, I, like I jo- we joke about this all the time, is like we're in our 14th year of doing Gruen. We might, people ask, when are you going to finish the show? And we're like, we reckon we'll probably wrap it up about when they wrap up free-to-air TV, <laughs> you know, whenever that is in the next three to five years, when free-to-air TV, TV is no longer a thing, will probably never not be a thing either. Like we're seeing the last of that industry out, you know, and, um, you know, the, the, the world has changed. And for people to just have an idea and to make something, I just find, even if the show wasn't great, I'd already be like halfway there on the fact that they got it made. But the fact that it is also great, I highly recommend it. I'm going to watch it. I love it. They did it. And, and I just think that passion for, I think, I think if you've spent time thinking about art and entertainment and learning like you train yourself through years and years of being in the field about what is actually good and what sort of smoke and mirrors um taking on the role as we get older of like curating and like helping people pointing to the good stuff so that it cuts through and just throwing your weight behind things and i think that's a very noble character development that like it's like a natural part of the process so it's like another chapter I got to be honest. I, I, it is actually genuinely, I think, my passion. Like, I love doing my job. I really do love doing my job. But if I could just have a world where I like just did some stand up, like however many nights of the year I need to do my own show, and then the rest of the year was just like, like I was a professional curator. If like I, I think actually the job that I really would have liked in life was to be a tastemaker. You know, one of those people that people are just like whatever this guy's into, like we will just follow that. And I could if I could just live that life in some way, finding cool shit and then telling people about cool, being enthusiastic about other people's cool shit. I think oh, that'd be a nice way to but live that, the rest that of my is- life. That is what you do. I mean, I, yeah, I, but that's my hobby. Yeah. I do it part time. Yeah, wanna... You don't get paid for it. But um, but yeah. I, anyway, I think it's all. I think it's like a really important aspect of in our industries, like accepting that you're not going to be able to speak with the the venom of a 20 year old like starting to do their thing and going but that needs to be heard and it needs to be shared and it's going to keep accelerating things. It's like because we're fans, right? I mean, that's like how it all starts. Yeah, yeah. It, it, okay, that's cool. All right, so um, I love talking to you about mm-hmm. this sort of stuff, but I also, like, the interesting thing about the cults, I yeah, just yeah. wanted to, like, go back to <laughs> totally. linking the two of them together. Yes. Which is, is there any, 
cults you think because like this is the interesting thing for the Nexium thing for me which was the the story with Nexium for anyone who has not like you know because I, like, I went deep on that like I, I watched both the documentaries but then I like listened to like podcasts yeah, by too. people who were involved <laughs> and like the whole thing like 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 start to finish like and isn't it, it is it is perverse too don't you find it's like yeah. listening to murder podcasts like mm. you are exercising a part of yourself that like wants it to get worse and worse and it's like sort of oh, weird, you know? <laughs> right? And because I don't, I won't listen to murder podcasts for that reason. Yeah. I'm like, I, you know what? And I watch Law and Order, so yeah, I'm yeah. not like <laughs> saying that I'm some great saint. But I find that weird about. But cult ones, yeah. There is a part of me that's like, this is my version of a murder podcast for sure, and I do want things to get fucked up. Like I'm sad, but those <laughs> fucked up things have already happened, guys. I can't do anything about the fact that they've happened. I hope they're in episode six, and I hope to get I get to hear about them from eight people's different perspectives but for me the Nexium one that would have got never like yeah, there's so many bad things that happen but having to go and watch any cult leader play volleyball at three o'clock in the morning would have been I'm out that's it I just could not there's no one charismatic enough you mentioned Run the Jewels earlier and like I'm literally wearing like a Run the Jewels hoodie as we do this like um, oh yeah yeah I have know, a t-shirt podcast. of that yeah yeah I love that and like I, I've often said that I think Killer Mike could get me to do pretty much anything. He's a man. But I reckon if, but if he asked me to go and watch him play volleyball <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning, I'd be like, it's been nice being in this cult, Killer Mike, but I gotta go. Well, the cult has to have a flavor for an experience you wanna have, right? So, like, all the cults I liked were, like, kind of out there. Like, there was right. either, like, they were either colorful or exotic or psychedelic or like, cause I got it. Mark and Bonnie invited me to an intro thing. I went to a Nexium mm. intro thing when it was called ESP, I think. And it was an executive right. training thing. And me and I only went to it and we sat and listened to it. And, um, Honestly, it was too corporate for me. Like, I recognized what it was. I was like, okay, this is like a wormhole. Like, you can go down this. There is like a whole process here. (laughs) But I was like, it doesn't like, I don't have a boner about it, basically. You know what I mean? Like, so. But also, you don't have a place for it in your life. It it, it was very much uh, pitched at people who wanted to be more successful in their careers. And I like being more successful in my career. I I could have been sold on that if they'd have done it differently. It was a bit, it was a bit too business. It was square. It was a bit square. Yeah. 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 It was. So, so yeah, I think, um, I don't know, but so, I don't know. So there's, there's now I feel like I'm very wary of that dynamic in anything. Like I, I sort of, you know, we're watching it play out with like the Johnny Depp thing, which I think is like, regardless of, and I always try and like, whenever I'm talking to friends about this subject or something, I want, it's like, regardless of what happened in the relationship or anything, what's, what's interesting to me now is the social dynamics around that case. Mm -hmm. And there is undeniably cult-like behavior around the need for him to be innocent and to defend him in a certain way. And it's just like, it's creepy. I just now see it as creepy. But also, like the the aspect of that that like remains unsaid or doesn't always remain unsaid, but is that you know the algorithm, like the, the the forces that are working against us to manipulate us in those situations. It's not just that people have an unhealthy curiosity around celebrity; they are being fed this information in ways that is provocative to whatever side of the debate the algorithms decided that they're probably on, and it is being amplified in ways that they just don't understand well and it's not even that it's not even just the algorithm it's like you know we were both so interested watching the QAnon stuff like Mm. there are 
definitely from the beginning of the Johnny Depp thing, because I know Evan Rachel Wood a little bit, so I was watching the um the Marilyn Manson the way that thing unfolded, mm-hmm. and I was like, these guys are using the same troll farms. Yeah, there is no doubt here. There is there's money being spent on moving the Twitter conversation because people like it's funny how people don't you and I understand the power of Twitter and that it's not about it's not like Instagram where everyone's on it it's not about that it's about shaping the media narrative so what happens on Twitter changes the way the media talk about things and it is if you want to sway a conversation culturally it's kind of money well spent um, yeah, well, people say all the time, they're like, oh, Twitter's not real life. Twitter is absolutely not real life. But unfortunately, what Twitter is, is like it has, what, 5% of the population fucking are on Twitter, but like, you know, 95% of the media class are on Twitter. Yeah. And so you can shape an entire way that the rest of the world finds out about a thing and the prism in which it's viewed and the idea of what's going to be sticky or not sticky is all, that's where, yeah, Twitter, Twitter is the troll farm of the media, you know, exactly. it, it farms it out to the major media. Exactly. And so like there's the algorithm, but then there's people who make it their business to influence the algorithm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yes, tech Intentional is, bad actors. Exactly. So, like, tech has a role to play in this, but whatever algorithm is created, there will be ways to manipulate it. And that's, I think, where when you're watching things like this, you're going, okay, someone is spending money. Someone is spending money on this. And to what end? Um, and it's, I, ugh, it's, it's pretty dark, man. It's really dark. Yeah. yeah. And being fed to, like, teenagers in particular when it comes around. Like, for me, the cultural, you know, messaging, you know, in a trial like this. And again, like, I, you know, I genuinely did not actually follow it very much at all. And because I just, it, it, it seemed very horrible. Like, you know, and it seems like it's been a horrible relationship and situation on a whole bunch of levels, regardless of what the fucking truth of what's been going on. It does not seem... Like, either of those people are in good places, right? Like, you know, and, you know. So, um, it was messy. And I didn't want to, like, you know, dig around in other people's mess. That's not interesting to me. But I c- could not avoid the fact that it was a massive part of the cultural conversation. Yeah, it and was there, trending every day on the media. That's right. And there was fed, an organic you know. event occurred. Like, an organic event occurred between these two people. And it was, mm. you know, it was outlandish and bizarre and everything. But then you start looking at, like... Um, the way the right-wing media was amplifying the Johnny Depp side of it. And that's, I think, when you get into what you're talking about, like, so what's at stake here? Why would the right-wing, why is this political at all? And you realize that a lot of the voter base is very anti the changes that have happened in society over the last 10 years with Me Too. And you realize, oh, this could become a perfect political tool at riling up a voter base. And it's like... I don't know. It's like, it's so, it, it, I, I've lost a lot well, of I innocence mean, that, uh, in that sense. That's, you know? so, but that's absolutely what it is. And it sounds like conspiratorial to say these sort of things, but they're not conspiracies. It's just the way that the media actually does work, which is there is one side of politics, you know, particularly with the Me Too movement, you know, and the, the line that is used that the right wing, you know, obviously use as like a, a, a kind of a, a counterintuitive argumentative tool is, you know, believe all women, right? So what all they are looking for is a high profile account of where you can't believe a woman. 
And then every time that like somebody on one side says, "Hey, we've you know we've got to like, you know look at this Me Too movement and we've got to reform our society and we've got to look at these issues," you know we've got to believe women. They go, "Oh, what about Amber Heard?" Totally. That's, I mean, that's literally what they're doing. And what like, I, they're just looking yes. for high-profile exceptions to political arguments they're going to make yes. later. Yes, and it reminds me of um, when um, the QAnon stuff was really ramping up and you started seeing... Like, I started seeing normal people that I knew bringing up talking points that were connected to right-wing propaganda that had filtered down to them that they didn't realize at all. Like, these were, like, normal, just people who were like, but what about... um hydroxychloroquine mm. i was like where did you read that like like the way the the internet works is it all just goes into our brains and we don't retain any sense of like where that what the context was from but um but yeah and i've noticed a similar thing with johnny depp like people that would ordinarily not have really any alignment with the right wing beginning to talk about it in a way that echoes right-wing talking points so you know that they're consuming media or it might be second or third hand through friends of theirs that are consuming it or friends of friends but it's getting through to them and it's shaping they're becoming part of a sea change that's like disturbing so then, again, and I'm not going to, I'm sure they would never listen to this podcast anyway, <laughs> but I have some friends who, um, you talked about the idea of like turning away from your, you know, the appeal of these cults when you realize it was affecting your parenting. And this is the, so like if we look at this QAnon stuff as being cult-like behavior, you know, the same motivations to get into these sort of things that are uh, to get into any cult, there's community and feeling like you're in on a secret and knowing about something that finding an explanation of things that can't feel explained all those sort of exact those same things but their kids were spouting the fact that dr fauci had started COVID, and I, up until then I'd, i kind of in, in a way had just been like they're my friends and you know what we can believe different things but the minute i heard their kids say that there was just honestly a little part of me that was like you can't be you can't be teaching your kids stuff like this. Your kid can't be going to the playground and telling other kids that Dr. Fauci started COVID. This is actually where we live. Probably the kid would get a lot of nods of agreement. And like, yeah, absolutely. But in in the general sense, that felt like uh, that, that to me feels very dangerous. Yeah, it's been there's uh, Yeah, I, I feel like I've just yeah lost a lot of innocence. But in some ways, I guess my pushback against that and this ties back to the making mm -hmm. art stuff has been that like, again, a defiance of, because I've also watched a lot of lefties just become increasingly angry and yeah. cynical and bitter. And, ah, uh, it's really, it's also equally depressing a lot of the time. So I've just sort of been looking for like, well, how do I be part of solution oriented thinking? And I think we've lost our sense of play i mean that's a really big part yeah. of it and that's why when with my album that's coming out in august and calling it i'm fun um it it seems statements like that can seem non-political but the, everything is political and the, what we choose to say you know people know about um what i've been through with uh whether it's this cult stuff or just ups and downs in the industry or, you know, whatever it is, or the QAnon stuff. Like I got a lot of people paid attention to that. And I think the resilience of saying at the end of the day, I'm fun, baby. You know, that's what it's about for me. And I think that that 
is needed. Like we need to remember that like we got to engage in a way that's like enjoyable and, and inspiring to each other and to ourselves. Okay. So what then if, I mean, and this might be hard to define because maybe it's too many things, but what does that actually mean? Like to you, I'm fun. Like what is it? Cause fun is a word that can have like, can be open to a million interpretations and maybe that's part of the vibe of why you call something something like that so people can interpret it themselves but when when i when you say i'm fun what do you mean well i think when you go um it starts with the question you asked me about like uh why i was getting into cults and the phrase i've never used that before when i said i'm a gobbler um that's i'm fun man it's like i'm I'm someone who will engage 100% with what I'm doing. And and so I like divorcing the idea of fun from always being like, like whether it's like happy or um, it, it can also be that like, you'll, you know, that Haruki Murakami thing, like you'll go down to the bottom of the well and you'll find the deepest well and you'll sit in it. Um, that like, I'm not someone who it'll be like no stone unturned. And in my experience, the people that I connect with and the people that I um, take inspiration from or want to, like, have at a dinner party are people that they're gobblers of life. You know what I mean? Like, that's really what it's about to me. And it's always been like that. Like, you know, when I was 18, I made a record... um, something to remember me by and the first song the chorus was I want to uh, I'm going to make it through and I'm going to do it all and it was like we're done with a perfect 18 year old naivety about <laughs> what the hell I could be possibly biting off and for sure it would be more than I could chew but um, but that's I think that's what's fun I think fun is the um, commitment to staying engaged and to chasing and to marinating and wrestling and trying to digest this experience of being alive I w- I've been thinking a lot, uh, particularly the last few days, about um, art and you know how important things can be to you, even if they're not the most successful thing in the world, and how we reconcile that. Because the the measurement of great art has always been. I was asked on a, a an interview a couple of days about Ricky Gervais's special, and I the thing that I you, there's all the politics we could get into and the jokes about topics and all that sort of stuff but the thing that I really said was it was just sad to me that I know a thousand people who are better at comedy that that form of comedy than Ricky Gervais and if they'd just taken the money that they gave Ricky Gervais for that special and they evened it out to those thousands of people they would all make something that was better than that special that was the real thing that like and quality the quality some yeah, yeah. sometimes people are just so uh, there's a podcast. You you you'd know this performer. Do you know Jimmy Pardo? You know Jimmy Pardo. Yeah, I've never you listened to his podcast though. But yeah. but he has a podcast called Never Not Funny, and it's one of the original podcasts, like from back in the day. And Marin became you know the biggest thing in the world off podcasting. That could have easily been Never Not Funny. You know, it was as good a show. It's a different show, but it was just. For whatever reason, you know, Marin became the Nirvana and, you know, never not funny, never never kind of had that same sort of success, despite the fact that it, it – but it is it's still going. I had not listened to, to it for years, and a mutual friend of ours, Jen Kirkman, was on an episode and tweeting about it, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to – have a listen to the this was, I used to really like this podcast. I'm gonna this is a good opportunity for me to dip back in. And oh my God, it was just the bit of art that I needed in the middle of the pandemic. Oh, wow. And I ended up 
listening to i think in the last like year i've probably listened to 400 back episodes of wow. it like you know like gone like way back and loved every episode like and so anyway, this week on Gruen, they have this like in joke, which is when someone says 69, they say up top my brother, which is just like, it's like the story behind it is long and whatever, but it's become... It's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Well, they oh, saw no. two guys at the they saw two guys at the airport. Um, so something was sixty nine, and then like two strangers basically just said to each other, "Up top, my brother," and high fived, and it became this like part of the language of their show. So anyway, on Gruen, we literally had this like thing that would like the answer was sixty nine, and I just said, "Up top, my brother." Like literally, no one will understand that joke. Like it, it was honestly just me playing a little so that I could clip it out and then just send it to them and say, "Hey, uh, you know, I love the podcast and whatever." Anyway. Anyway, so it made me think that in the last two years of everything that I've seen of everything that I loved, there is no piece of art that was more important to me than this podcast that is nowhere near the biggest podcast in the world. Like Mm -hmm. it really is still just a podcast that still exists for fans of the podcast. And yet for me in the last year was by far and away uh, over every piece of music, every film, every TV show, anything else that was released, the most important, it came to me in a time when I just absolutely needed that show and the way that they were doing that show. And that alone thinking about someone else's art in that way and how important it was to me and then taking out of the fact that this isn't Bo Burnham or Ricky Gervais or you know whatever but does that make it any less valid as being the most important piece of art to me absolutely not right so I guess that's a big run-up for me to ask you about the idea of where does like popularity and amount of people consuming something fit in with where it is that you know what it is that you want to do and what are your ambitions around those things because you like yeah like you said the past has always been about i'm going to be the i'm the greatest like this is the greatest song ever written in australia i'm going to be the biggest thing ever well you're not but you are also something yeah yeah, yeah. What, what are you how do you think about that well part of the issue um in Australia or in small countries in general, like relatively, Mm. is the only way to make a living doing your art is to be mainstream successful. Like if you're, you know, the the division between comedians or musicians that can make a living in Australia with Australia as their audience, um, Mm. that is a big chasm you got to get over, you know, and most people, it, it either becomes a hobby or sort of just falls away because it's impractical. And I think um, things that are more niche, like in America, because the market is so big, you can have things that are like not as successful. Like you're saying, Jimmy Pardo, like if you look at the iTunes podcast charts, um, he's probably not even in it, right? Yet he's probably making a fine living as just like a working comedian and podcaster. And because you're in a really big market, you can do that. And I think that's a big part of why... I've always thought on sort of an international scale because I never wanted to even even when I was like I want to be the biggest thing ever I wanted to be I wanted to do it my way. I had yeah. no interest in like I don't know there's people who are really good at that like Delta Goodrum or something like being like a mainstream down the line please everybody your mom and grad get everyone around and see, you know it's great but I knew that was never going to be me. So 
trying to sustain myself as, um, you know, it's almost like there was a disconnect between the words coming out of my mouth and what was actually in my heart. Cause I've always valued the quality of my audience much more than the quantity. Like mm. I don't want everyone to love me. I've never done the things you have to do to make everybody yeah. love you on any level. I've always wanted smart people to like me basically. <laughs> and that's, that's the real truth of it. Like I, I want to look into my audience and relate to them as friends. Yeah. And there like can be, them. there can be, you know, honestly, like 500 of them in a room is, it meets my needs. Yeah. I, I, I love it when you get to play a really That's massive heaps. show. Yeah. I don't need more than 500 people there. I feel very much 500 like, tapes. and That's if they're great. enthusiastic, I get home at the end of the day and I'm like, I really feel good about what I'm doing yeah. in my life. And it's like made as long as I've kept production costs low, it's like been profitable. Yeah. And, you know, so so I guess w what I'm saying is just that, like, the way I measure success is it's sort of in this gray area of not just about like looking at the numbers because numbers are important because they let you keep doing the thing. Yes. There's got to be enough people there. But it's about like how like sort of like how good did it feel to do that actual thing and the the who it was that connected with it on the other side is part of how good it feels you know like i know that like now when i meet like you know like young people like mole rat or something who work sort of in like a different kind of a different genre i mean still pop music you know but you know i there was something i can't remember like uh, oh i tweeted out someone retweeted the um the atari song about me and i I retweeted out my cover of it and um, Grace Mulrat just wrote, this is why we stand Ben Lee. And I was like, oh yeah, the generational <laughs> thing of like, just being like, fuck yeah. you. This is what I'm into. There's yeah. like, I really like, I think I've lost, I look, I do feel that I've always felt that I want my career to peak in my seventies. Mm -hmm. And when I said that in my twenties, it sounded absurd because like who is this kid thinking about his 70s even but i would look at like tom waits and leonard cohen and um bonnie Raitt and people that just sort of got better and deeper and more comfortable and more natural and just more in their universe and i'd be like that's the kind of career i want but now i'm 30 years into my career i'm halfway to that you know like another 30 years i'm going to be 73 and that actually doesn't have the absurdity to it anymore that it once had. So I don't know where that's going to take me. It could be a further refinement of my universe that actually allows it to become more accessible and more commercial, which is often the path that if you really take that path, like Tom Waits, you would have never thought that he now has his biggest live concert business He's, he doesn't play much, but it is an incredibly healthy in-demand business. It's the biggest it's ever been in terms of what he could play when he wants to. The route he's taken to get there is like unfathomable. You would never recommend that to an artist as a career choice. But it got there through his own finessing of and his commitment. So yeah. that's kind of how I look at my my path into the future, you know. Man. Okay. So there's a new single that's coming out. Yeah. Um, and you're so in the video. Should, and I'm in the video. Yeah. So we should quickly talk yes. about that before we go. So, so, so yeah, there's a new. Tell people about this. Yeah. The single's called Parents Get High. And it's a song that was produced by John Bryan, who people might know from. Um, he produced Fiona Apple and Kanye and Frank Ocean. Yeah. And he's one of those guys who, like, 
he he only does what he wants to do and so like you send him something or whatever and it's like you just may never hear back and it was in the middle of the pandemic like in 2020 and um i sent it to him and i just was like okay i guess you know i don't know he's he just he works all night he's a very eccentric guy and just one morning there's a dropbox link and he has just played everything on this song and it's just like gorgeous you know so so anyway this he's, a, he's, an, he's an incredible artist uh, for people who've never heard of him I do recommend they do a bit of a deep dive so I think even maybe even on your recommendation I'm going to say because I can't imagine who else would have recommended this to me but he used to perform regularly at a venue called Largo in, in LA yeah, still which does. is not far still from does. Yeah. not far from where I live no I know nothing happens Ben when I'm not there anymore <laughs> the entire universe ceases to exist and I assume that nothing is happening anymore um, but I I saw him very regularly at that venue do gigs and what like one of the most impressive yeah. live like I mean speaking of people who like you know people aren't necessarily familiar with but everybody in that room at those shows w- were there because they were massive fans of his and just he I'm an incredible musician. Oh look as as a musicians we are all living on the crumbs that John Bryan rejects basically because mm. the guy can do anything and so like any <laughs> any job you get offered whether it's like composing it's like John Bryan's already passed on it you know they couldn't get it um, but, but um, yeah he also did like Eternal Sunshine soundtrack yeah. and other great stuff so anyway he, but the song is um, it's really fun it's a it's like a Steve Millery kind of thing and it's a it's just about like looking at your parents and um, thinking about how as a kid, you don't know what this weird secret world is that they're in when they have their glass of wine at five o'clock or six o'clock after work. And there's this sort of universe that only they understand. And um, so it's looking at the chorus is just what makes your parents get high, you know, and it's a question that doesn't have an answer. But the video is really great. There's um, all these fun cameos from people. Um, but um, and yeah, the, the album's called I'm Fun. That's coming out in August. And then I'm about to go on tour around Australia. Yes. I'm playing um, two shows in Melbourne at the SB and the Nightcat, playing Brisbane at the Trifford, Sydney at Oxford Arts Factory, Brisbane, I'm sorry, Adelaide at Lion Arts Factory and Perth at the Rosemount. Those are over the next couple of weeks. So people can find them online and um and then also me and my wife Ioni have a podcast um weirder together that is um we've just we're like four five episodes into and it's um it's really fun because we just have one of those relationships where we've never been able to shut up with each other and so at a certain (laughs) point the only option left is to have a podcast you know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and you are you doing you're doing like a i made a little note in my diary that you're doing some sort of launch oh yeah yeah is that right yeah we're gonna do a launch at cafe frida's in sydney which is a great little restaurant and we're gonna dj and then like japanese wallpaper and Georgia Mac, we're going to have some friends DJing and we're going to have some like, I don't know, maybe like contortionists or balloon animal vendors or, you know, we're just going to throw a little party basically. So that's on the, on June 29th at um, Cafe Frida's free so people can come along. Okay. Ben Lee, thank you very much for being on Fofop for the first time. This was fun. Oh man, I always love our chats. This was, uh, this was good. It was just what I needed this morning. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much, my friend. Cheers. (laughs) 